Hello everyone, I'm Diana Silva. And I'm Kate Galliford. Strap yourself in, pop in your AirPods, and grab some snacks, because this month's episode is sure to send a shiver down your spine. In this episode, we target our true crime fanatics and interview Fordham alum Leo Burnaby on the inexplicable death of Fordham student Patrick McNeil back in 1997. We also include a very special narrative on the psychologically thrilling story of Anastasia Andreva. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. The first case we're going to explore today is that of Anastasia Andreeva. Anastasia was an FCLC student set to graduate in 2008. She was an accomplished student making the Dean's List for the fall 2007 semester. Her professors described her as being, quote, a brilliant scientist and an excellent artist and bright and enthusiastic, if a bit over serious. While students and staff alike agreed that Andreeva was a bright young woman, in the weeks leading up to the murder of Brooklyn resident Alexi Katz, her friends and peers noticed that she appeared increasingly troubled. She was involved in a number of incidents on campus that indicated that Andreeva was not feeling herself. A close friend of Andreeva's revealed that a few short weeks before the murder, Anastasia began reading copious amounts of philosophy books, talking about Nietzsche, and even claiming that she was seeing signs. This sudden unusual behavior was apparently especially noticeable the day before the murder, with Andreeva becoming, quote, really paranoid and delusional. FCLC student Luke T. Garden, who graduated in 2008, was supposed to work on a group presentation with Anastasia the night of the murder, but she canceled last minute, telling him that she was in, quote, no condition to meet. T. Garden recalled multiple instances of Andreeva acting strangely in class, including an outburst that took place three weeks before Alexi Katz's death, where she scolded her classmates for not attending an anti-war protest, despite claiming to value human life, and discussing her disgust at American apathy. Andreeva herself was an immigrant from Russia. Another instance recalled by Tea Garden took place a week afterwards, in which Andreeva walked up to the classroom's whiteboard and wrote, I am God, before being escorted from the room, and later, off campus, by a team of paramedics. A student who witnessed Andreeva leaving campus noted that she failed to respond to a friend calling out to her and seemed, quote, completely out of it. Andreeva did not return to class after the incident. On November 25, 2007, Andreeva went to have dinner at the Flatbush apartment of her friend Alina Katz, where she lived with her husband, Alexi. Around 3 in the morning of November 26, Andreeva would stab Alexi to death with a kitchen knife. The exact nature of the relationship between Andreeva, Alina, and Alexi is disputed. According to some tabloid reporting around the time of the crime, including by the New York Post, the three were involved in a sexual relationship at the time, and the murder was the result of Andreeva's jealousy over Alina. While it was confirmed that Alina and Anastasia were involved in a romantic relationship during high school, both Alina and several of Andreeva's friends have denied that the three were entangled in a relationship at the time of the murder, disputing the common lesbian love triangle gone wrong story purported by some sources. Alina Katz testified that both she and her husband noticed Andreeva's unusual behavior the night she came over for dinner, and at one point, Alexi tried to insist that Andreeva lay down and rest. It was at that point that Andreeva took a knife from the kitchen and stabbed him to death. Eventually, Andreeva and her attorneys would plead guilty by reason of insanity. Unbeknownst to her friends and peers, Andreeva had a history of mental health troubles and was diagnosed by doctors with psychosis and bipolar disorder. Andreeva explained the events of that night from her perspective, saying, quote, 
The candle was burning, and I saw the face with horns, and I started shaking and sweating. And then I went to approach the candle and run with it outside, because the voice in my head said, bring people to light. I got a knife to protect myself. And I staggered over to the bed, and he rushed at me, and at that point I stabbed Mr. Katz. I didn't understand what was going on. End quote. The crime shocked the Fordham community and everyone who knew Andreeva, including Alina Katz, who expressed her hope that Andreeva would be rehabilitated and be able to one day do some good. Despite the uncertainty surrounding the precise nature of the relationship between Andreeva and the Katzes, it is clear that this was a tragic incident that deserves more than the sensationalist coverage it received at the time due to both the romantic relationship between the two women and because of Andreeva's mental health struggles. It's our hope that the affected parties are able to find some measure of peace. It was a particularly cold evening on February 16th, 1997. The temperatures had dropped to 23 degrees and Patrick McNeil, a junior at Fordham College at Rose Hill, was just beginning his night. Although it was a Sunday night, Patrick had plans to head to the Dapper Dog, a bar located on Manhattan's Upper East Side. The bar was popular amongst the students at Fordham and had been the perfect spot to spend the night dancing, drinking, and mingling. Patrick had stopped by the Dapper Dog as his friend was bartending, dressed in nice attire and a flirtatious aura. As the night had gone on, Patrick went to the bathroom, and around midnight, he had begun to throw up in the bar's bathroom. After he had finished throwing up, he went to his friends to let them know that he would be taking the subway back to Fordham because he was tired and had an early morning class the next day. His friend had told him she would take the subway back with him, but that she would use the restroom first. Patrick waited outside, but when she wouldn't come out, he left and went to the nearest subway. He began to walk down 2nd Ave and 92nd Street, where he was last seen. Patrick was not seen again until April 7, 1997. His body was found 11 miles down the river, floating near a pier in the East River. It was 12 miles from where he was last seen. We've invited FCLC student and columnist for The Observer, Leo Burnaby on to take us through the events of the 1997 death of Fordham University student, Patrick McNeil. Hi, Leo, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So you don't hear much about serial killers anymore nowadays, which is fascinating to see you write an article on one from years ago. So we just wanted to know what sparked your interest in this case 22 years later. Was it because it was Fordham-centered or because you had previously researched the smiley face killer? Well, I think like many other people our age, types of stories like these are interesting on their face. And uh, a TV series came out about this, uh, this theory in 2019. And so I started watching this show and it detailed how a team of private detectives many of whom used to be NYPD officers believe that there is this group of murderers really, or some sort of gang that operates online and online chat rooms and, and 
coordinates across the Northeast and Midwest United States and abducts and murders young college-aged males. And so the first, the first case uh, that, that these detectives investigated was a Fordham student. And at the time I saw the show, I didn't know it was a Fordham stu student, but when I started doing my own research on this theory, and Patrick McNeil was the first case in this mysterious string of deaths. And so Patrick was a junior at Fordham College at Rose Hill, and he was out on the Upper East Side one night at a, at a bar known for its Fordham students to frequent. And when he left, he was described as visibly intoxicated. He was sort of meandering up the street. And what was odd about it is that several of the people who were later interviewed testified that they saw a van follow him up the street and up 2nd Avenue. And he turned, he made a right on East 90th Street. And after that, no one saw him again. And so over a month later, with everyone looking for him, and hanging up missing person signs. His body was finally recovered and he was dead and he was floating next to a Brooklyn pier in the East River. And at the time, nobody really suspected any foul play or anything like that. His blood alcohol content was determined to be 0.16. And so the NYPD and the New York medical examiner's consensus was that he drunkenly stumbled his way over to the, over to the East River, fell in and, and drowned. Patrick's parents didn't really think this was the case. They didn't think this would happen to their son. And so they hired this private investigator named Kevin Gannon, who used to belong to the NYPD. And he started looking into Patrick's case. And this is when he realized, and this was years later, I should note, this is when he realized that there's a, a string of very similar and disturbing disappearances and deaths of these young college men. And the one startling clue that he discovered near every single location where each of these bodies were found is that there was a smiley face somewhere near there, usually in graffiti. And so on its face, it might sound like a very bizarre theory. You know, a, a gang of men is going around and hunting college-aged students and, and abducting them and murdering them. But it does seem to be a bit too widespread just to be a coincidence. And it's it's very bizarre, but the theory may actually have some credibility. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what we know about Patrick McNeil's character and sort of how people would describe him. Well, when I wrote an article about this theory a couple of years ago, I didn't have too much information on him, just mainly from stories that were published after his death. But his roommates described him as a ladies' man, how his clothes always had to be perfect. Fordham professors said that he was a great student and they praised his work and he himself wanted to join the FBI one day. You told us a little bit about like the night of, like what happened. Is there anything else that like that led up to his death on that night in February, like up until the night of the discovery of his body? I don't think that there was anything. What is interesting when Gannon and his team investigated Patrick's death is that they found fly larvae on his body and flies don't lay eggs in cold temperatures such as the night in which he supposedly drowned. Uh, additionally, to get to the East River where Patrick's body was found uh, from East 90th Street where he was last seen, he would have had to cross the FDR Drive, which is a limited access freeway on the east side of Manhattan. 
And that road is notorious for crashes and deaths. So there are people that don't even like to drive on that road. So a totally inebriated person, the likelihood of, of that individual making it across that highway unimpeded and unsighted by anyone would be next to nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note kind of the inconsistencies like in the investigation and things that didn't add up and just a few of the things that you mentioned where it kind of seems like an instant red flag and would kind of provoke further investigation than the case really received. And so obviously you express some doubt and people like former NYPD detective Kevin Gannon, who we've mentioned a few times, had real doubts that this was just kind of an accidental drowning as a result of him becoming too intoxicated. Do you think that the ruling of the case where it's now kind of ruled, it's become a bit of a, it's, it's a cold case essentially where they've ruled the cause of death is drowning, but it's still open for investigation, but it's been largely neglected at this point. What do you kind of think the reasons were that the police backed away from the case and didn't kind of pursue it more aggressively as things like the smiley killer or smiley face killers theory became more popular and that sort of thing. It was just left as a cold case in in the hands of private investigators like Gannon. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I, I don't want to disparage the investigations and the work done by the authorities on these cases, but as you said, they are cold cases and to reopen a cold case that kind of, that calls into question the, the investigation that was done. And so in a sense, I think they'd like to see some really good evidence as to why they should open the case. And what Gannon is presenting, while it is intriguing, a lot of people would say that it's circumstantial evidence. It doesn't really establish anything conclusive, you know, where these, where many of the, the, these young uh, males' bodies were found is in cities. And so it's really not that uncommon to see a smiley face graffitied within a general vicinity of, of where these bodies were found. And so in another, in, in, in another sense, when you have the police investigating these cases and there's no real sign of a struggle, there's no real signs of any foul play. And like I said before, the evidence that there was foul play or that this was murder as opposed to an accidental drowning is simply circumstantial. The police really it would be hard for them to say, or it would be hard for a medical examiner to say definitively, you know, that this, that these cases are, are murders. Okay. So you talked about kind of the difficulties of what cold cases are and how difficult it is to bring them back and investigate them again. Um, do you think that the ruling of the case was related to lack of expertise or maybe a lack of technological advances or were the police negligent or quick to think he was um, inebriated and drowned himself? Were there any cost issues, perhaps? Honestly, I'm I'm not too sure. And and like I said earlier, I, I don't want to disparage the work that was done in these investigations, especially as I I haven't you know been able to read the documents myself or read the official police reports. Um, but I would say that the 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 series on the smiley face killers, the TV series, certainly makes it out to seem that there is kind of an automatic assumption in a lot of these cases that when the authorities have found the bodies of these young men and they know that they were 
uh, drunk beforehand, and there many of them have been found in water that they mistakenly stumble their way over to some sort of river or lake or waterway and fallen and drown. And, and so there definitely is an assumption there that that it is an accident and it was sort of these young men's own fault that they ended up dead. So perhaps there is sort of that that basis that they're working from. Um, but again, at the same time, like I said, regardless of the technological advances between the time of Patrick's death and the present day, uh, when you really don't have any hard evidence linking these deaths to murders, it, it is perhaps hard for a medical examiner to say with certainty that, that it is in fact a murder. Then finally, I don't know if you wanted just to expand a little or comment a little bit. Obviously, I think it's always kind of a shock or a surprise to think of this sort of thing happening to the Fordham community. Obviously, it happened in the late 90s, so we're distant from it now, but I don't know. I also think there's kind of an assumption that, I don't know, like an automatic sense of safety when we're near the university or we kind of feel like we have the university watching over us. But obviously this case is kind of a reminder that things can happen to anyone, regardless of if you go to a university and you have public safety and that kind of a thing. And also it's interesting that the this gang or this you know kind of theory of a gang existing that targets specifically like college age male students, you don't typically think of them as being like the most vulnerable group to kind of predators or crime or uh, violence, that sort of a thing. So do you have any general thoughts on like the necessity of just kind of keeping an eye out and that sort of a thing as a college student? Right. It, I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there in terms of safety. And, you know, a, a lot of people I've told about this theory in this case, particularly because it pertains to Fordham, uh, they had no idea about it. And so I guess regardless of, of whether this theory is true or not, or whether all of these deaths of these young college students are actually accidental, um, it does raise a point that, you know, there's, there's some safety concerns implicated in these cases. And, you know, I, I can only imagine how horrible it must be to be the, the parents of these of these young men. And, and you know, you know, we need to remember that that, you know, Patrick McNeil, however he died, he lost his life and, and he was a Fordham student. And he seems like he was a very smart individual, wanted to be in the FBI, as I said. And so regardless of what happened, these are very, very sad stories. Um, and I don't think we should forget that. And I think that, you know, it should be a lesson for everybody in college, especially where we are, but, but not just because we're in a city, to, to stay safe. Thank you, Leo, for joining us today and for answering our questions and just giving us a really detailed talk today and for being very pleasant with us and very patient. So thank you. Absolutely. I'm always glad to come on the podcast. This has been Retrospect. Special thanks to Leo Burnaby for sitting down with us and sharing his insights into the Patrick McNeil case. As always, I'm Kate Galliford. And I'm Diana Silva. We hope you enjoyed this month's True Crime Summer Special, and we can't wait to be back with you next month.